Hi, friend. Welcome back to The Everyday Evangelist. I'm Jessica Dudek, Director of Evangelization at Christ the King Catholic Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and this is your landing ground for practical tips and tools for sharing the faith in the day-to-day. Today, I am extremely excited to welcome some more um, some more friends from Desert Stream Ministries. If you've been following along this series, we're talking about God's message of life and hope in the midst of our broken sexuality. Last week, we had Marco Casanova speaking. He's also on staff with Desert Stream Ministries. And today, we are extremely excited to welcome Chris Elman and Abby Ford. Chris and Abby are therapists at Center for Healing, and I don't know how long they've been working for Desert Stream, and so I'm going to let them share a little bit about their history, but they're coming on today to talk to us about sex addiction. This is a topic that is so prevalent for us in society today, and I'm thrilled to hear their perspective about how we can empathetically come alongside somebody to help them come into healing. What do we need to understand? What pitfalls do we need to overcome? But also for those of us who are actively struggling, what, where is hope? And how is God speaking life to you today? So Abby and Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and would love to give you the floor. Um, let us know what's, let us know a little bit about you. Yeah, great. Well, thanks Jessica for having us. And yeah, I might clarify just for Chris's sake so that, that he's not um, put into something that he, he doesn't want to be. Um, but Chris and I are colleagues at the Center for Healing together where it's a Catholic therapy association right here in Kansas City. We have just a strong cohort of uh, colleagues, just really loving people and doing good psychological work with them as therapists and social workers. And so Chris and I are colleagues there. And then, yes, Marco Casanova, who you just referenced, he and I are colleagues at Desert Stream Ministries, which is a, another ministry here in Kansas City, based in Kansas City, but we have groups really all over the world. And um, you know, our ministry, as, as any listeners may know, we minister to the church to help the church really learn to deal with deep sexual and relational fracturing. And we do that by equipping lay people in the church. So where Chris and I are therapists, Desert Stream is not an organization based on therapy, but we are just inviting both the like good psychological and theological information to ground us in freedom that the Lord really does want for us. And so on many, in many areas of our sexual fracturing. So that's, I work there, My, me personally, I work there about four days a week as the executive director and then um, keep just a small private practice here in Kansas City, which I love. I love to, to give um, kind of boots on the ground, which we do as therapists. So I don't know, what would you add, Chris, anything? Well, you, you summed it up uh, pretty well. <laughs> um, yeah, with, so as Abby said, I'm, I'm not a part of, uh, of Desert Stream. Uh, but I'm a huge supporter of, of the, the great work that they do. Uh, but I'm here full-time at the Center for Healing, I have a full client load. And uh, as Abby did reference, it's it's really a blessing to be working with uh, not not just, uh, you know, colleagues and, and really friends that are, are well-formed um, in their faith, but that are uh, very professional and, uh, you know, and very educated in, in the work that they do. Yeah, probably should be said on the topic that we're talking about. Um, Chris is Chris and Michael, another one of the guys in our office, both have kind of extra 
specializations in this area of sex addiction, which honestly makes them such an asset to us at the center. But maybe you should explain, Chris, what those specializations are just better sure. people to know, even when they're looking for a therapist. What do mm-hmm. I look for? Yep. Uh, so, uh, so two of the designations I have, uh, one is called the SAP-P and that's uh, mm-hmm. sexual addiction uh, treatment, uh, treatment provider. Mm-hmm. And the other is uh, CSAT, which is, that stands for a certified sex addiction therapist. And so that gives me a, a very broad uh, and also not just broad, but a very specific uh, framework uh, to, be, to yeah. be working through uh, with my clients. Uh, and I think as we get into to our discussion, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of see how, um, how that benefits them. Yeah. Well, that's great. I, again, I'm so grateful for you two kind of coming on, sharing your insight, sharing your wisdom in this. And I know people who have been very greatly blessed um, by both your therapy practices and then of course by the ministry that you've done as well. So thank you, Abby, so much for making that distinction. I actually think that distinction is so important. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit about understanding where we have spiritual needs, but understanding where we have strictly emotional needs and, you know, seeing that God gives healing very holistically and kind of meets, meets all of that. So thank you for helping with the clarification and yeah, just really privileged to, to get to have you guys on today. So I have about a million questions. And so for launching in, I'd love to hear a little bit, what do we need to understand about the nature of addiction? And specifically with a sex addiction, how does that maybe differ from other addictions? Um, But what do we as the church, especially those of us who don't struggle with this, what do we need to understand about this struggle? You mind if I jump in? Go for it, Chris. Yeah. I think first and foremost, you know, any regardless of what the addiction is, the addiction itself is not the problem. Hmm. It it is a problem uh, to be sure. Uh, But really it's, it's a perceived uh, solution Hmm. to a very real problem. And we find that uh, many are, many of our clients, their struggles started uh, in childhood, Hmm. maybe through, uh, emotional or uh, relational trauma. Uh, unfortunately, you know, many of our clients have experienced uh, sexual abuse, um, you know, or, or you know, other types uh, of, of abuse as well. Um, and with, with any addiction, uh, mm-hmm. you know, typically shame is going to be inherent um, in, in that, uh, you know, in the addiction process. Yeah. But I th- we see that more so with, uh, with, uh, sex and pornography addiction. Mm-hmm. So I think, and was your question, can you? Uh... Yes. So <laughs> that's great. First of all, that answer really stirred me right away. I love that the perspective is that addiction isn't even the problem, but it's a fruit of something else. Um, I'm curious about the nature of addiction. Um, trying to think if there's another way to kind of phrase that question. But I guess, what do we need to understand about how addiction works um, in the sense of what does it look like for something like that to take over? Sure. Addiction serves a purpose, Hmm. right? Uh, If it weren't for trauma, uh, I don't think we would even be having a discussion about addiction. Can Uh, can I say something, Chris? And then if I... 
even absolutely what you're saying a little. So Gerald May is a gentleman who wrote this great book called Addiction and Grace. And I have a quote of his here just because I thought this would be really, really good for your listeners to hear. But he says that addiction attaches desire bonds and enslaves the energies of desire to certain specific behaviors, things, or people. Hmm. And then the objects of that attachment become preoccupations or obsessions that rule our lives. So, so the root of an addiction is that it takes what is good desire and then attaches that to something that is a lesser object or person or behavior. And I think that's where Chris and I would always see addiction, like he's saying, as a, a symptom of a misplaced desire. And I love how Gerald May frames that in his work because he is saying this idea of an addiction is misplaced desire and maybe come across through trauma or even very innocently in our culture, just through like exposure yeah. very early to sexual stimuli and curiosity, you know, normal, normal needs and normal questions then getting misplaced, but in that misplacement, the desires becoming an enslaved thing to something that in kind of in the understanding psychologically, it becomes a troublesome uh, aspect of our life. It disrupts us relationally, psychologically, emotionally. And yeah. so addiction by nature is something that that is causing problems in our life. So mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. does that help, or Chris, I, you can bounce off. I'm oh, sure. gosh, yeah. And so like what I hear uh, Abby saying there is, uh, you know, so we're, we're created for, for relationship. Yeah. Uh, like we're, we're created for bonding with, with one another. And when someone is, when someone's traumatized mm-hmm. and, you know, relationships are now kind of like encoded as dangerous. Well, that doesn't take away the need for bonding. So if we don't bond with others, we're going to bond with something else. Wow, that's that's powerful right there. I think what that's immediately making me think of is so um, oftentimes in the church, I feel that the perspective on sex addiction is that we're focusing just on the nature of sin. We're understanding that there's like a sin action happening for the person. And, but then what I'm hearing you say is that when you see that going down, your perspective is, you know, that there's been trauma, you know, that like a relationship has been broken and there's that kind of like mis, misplaced desire. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. And that sounds like a very healing perspective um, to have on somebody when you sort of see uh, that, that nature of addiction playing out. I'm curious, though, as we we press into that in the sense of like the spirituality of it, you know, there's the broken person, the damaged relationship, but then it is playing out in an act that is, you know, sinful. How do we kind of make sense of that in the sense of like, what is a person really culpable of when they're in regards to sin, when there's addiction, how do those, how do those play out? And how do you separate the spiritual from the mental? I don't know that you can. Okay. Uh, I think they're they're very much interrelated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think if we if we try to you know separate the spiritual from you know the mental or you know, emotional or psychological, uh, you're left with well that this person they're just they're just they just keep sinning. Yeah. And you know their the behavior is the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And so they just need to stop. And um, right there, there's a lot of uh, judgment in that. Uh, in fact, that's just going to um, probably lead to more. Well, not probably. It, it does. It leads to more shame yeah. for that person, which then leads to more hiding. Yeah. And usually, and that's going to perpetuate the behavior because mm-hmm. uh, with, with uh, like pornography and sex addiction, shame is actually one of the key drivers Yes, in the behavior. Um, however, there, there, there also is that, that question of, well, are they really culpable? <laughs> what we tell our clients is whatever happened to them uh, growing up is not their fault, mm-hmm. but it is their responsibility uh, to take ownership in their, in their recovery. I think the freedom of that with addiction in particular, is that we have some agency that we can reclaim. Mm-hmm. I do think strongly and deeply entrenched habituated behaviors, and certainly a priest would be a way better uh, responder at a theological or moral level, but I do think there is a level of, uh, there's in a way our culpability when a behavior has been habituated over the course of many years, maybe rooted in our own sin, maybe rooted in real trauma or real attachment wounds. You know, I do think there is, I think there's certainly a space for moral grace in that, but claiming this agency that says I can choose, I am not just the product of what has been done to me or what I've been exposed to. And I think all of us in a quite hypersexualized world where most of us have been exposed prematurely as a female. I certainly was. I'm in my late 30s and yet I was exposed to pornography, not even in the realm of the the cell phones and technology, but still so easily exposed to pornography and developing even this partnership, pornography, masturbation. So, wow, there's this whole dynamic that gets like a stronghold over our bodies, over our minds, over our hearts, over our it's our release valve. It's like, this is where I go to relieve my stress. Mm-hmm. But in that place, I think we we do realize over a period of time, maybe because of a moral theological awareness, like, oh, I want, I want to get free of this. And so I'm going to start activating my will and some really good, you know, programs and partners and therapists to help me enlist, enlist the help of others. But also I, I, yeah, I need something to help ground me beyond what has been this habituated response for decades or years of my life. And it it is so entrenched. And in those places, as Chris was saying, like shame and self-condemnation are like the worst motivators. They don't motivate us to freedom. In fact, they ensnare us again in this process of, all right, wounds, fear, shame. And I drive back to that quick relief, which addiction does provide at a neurochemical level, at a physical level, Mm -hmm. at an emotional level. It it gives us relief. We go back to addictions because quote unquote, they work until they don't Mm. work anymore. They disrupt us from what I would say is, is true relating the true fulfillment of need and desire, which to expose that to people, to God, that is the scariest piece. And yet that's the pathway to freedom from mm. addiction. Wow. Yeah, you start, you um, expanded a little bit more upon it now, which 
I, I'm wondering if you guys can press into a little bit more about shame. I'd love to hear, Chris, you said that shame is a one of the driving factors. Why is that? Because why is it that when we feel bad about ourselves that we keep going back to the behavior that keeps us feeling bad? And Abby, you started to press into more of that, that it's not motivating towards sort of the change. I um, would love to hear more of what you guys have to say about that. So shame is probably one of the, the most... Um, intensely negative um, human experiences that we can have, right? It's very isolating, uh, right? It, it operates in, in darkness and isolation. Um, and because it's so painful, well, we turn to things that we think will, will alleviate that. Yeah. And with, with shame, uh, I think just quickly, I like to differentiate between guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. You know, guilt is, is focused on the external, like uh, this, this behavior or this choice that I made was not good, uh, but I'm still a good person, but I do need to repair what I've done. And then after that, I can move on and, and hopefully learn from this mm-hmm. where shame is very um, internal. It's I am bad. Yeah. And then we use our mistakes as evidence. Well, well, of course I am. Cause look, look what I just did. Only a bad person would have done this. Mm-hmm. Right. And then to go back to that same behavior, like it, it fits that narrative. I'm bad. So I guess I do bad things. Mm-hmm. And that that's, there, there, there's more to it than that, but um, right. yeah. And uh, I did want to speak briefly to something that uh, Abby talked about too, is when, when someone is, you know, when any of us are entrenched in, uh, and habitual behavior, you know, for, you know, for a really long time, right. That literally that changes our brain. Mm. Like our brain is now, you know, it's, it's different than what it was before the behavior started. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's this concept, uh, it's called neuroplasticity, right. That's just mm-hmm. the, the ability for the brain to change over time. Yeah. Right. So, so if it weren't for neuroplasticity, healing would be impossible. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I've heard it said that uh, neuroplasticity is really a, a physical, a, like a very physical manifestation of God's grace. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I might add, I mean, this is maybe a little tangential, so I'll try to keep it somewhat <laughs> concise. <laughs> um, I was just reading in, in John 4 this weekend, so the, the topic of the Samaritan woman, a, a, a woman yeah. under like, so much shame and manifesting, we could say, in a, a sexual addiction of sorts, you know, she's mm. with number five husband or six husband, I can't remember, you know, she's, she's been around the block and, and shame being such a driver in her story, even such that she's getting water at the hottest part of the day when no one would want to be at the well. And Jesus is there tired at the well, needing water and he shows up. But it's so interesting to me. It struck me kind of as it never had before around shame, but in this interaction, Jesus essentially walks it all out and says to her, like, I want to give you living water or I want to give you water. First of all, and she's like, Oh my gosh, like, give me this water. I don't want to be thirsty again. Subtext. I don't ever want to have to come back to this well and reveal my face because of my shame. So like shame keeps me hidden. And in this inner interplay, you know, Jesus is like, I want to give you this water. She says, give me shit or give me the water 
that covers my shame. What she doesn't say, which I just found intriguing was give me the thing that will release me from what is binding me. She's like, just Mm -hmm. give me the water. I need the water, but I don't want to have to go through what is my shame. And I think like the addiction shame cycle is somewhat like that. It's like, okay, just give me the quick fix, the thing Mm -hmm. that will keep me watered and, and keep me hidden from people. I don't want to have to deal with this, but the, the path, certainly the path free from addiction, but the path to addressing the shame, which is like, it's like a deeper root. It, shame and addiction, though they often go together, I think shame is so much deeper in most of our lives. Mm. And shame being the thing that we have to address. And then addiction being kind of the superficial symptom of this deep shame, this deep self-hatred, this deep self-rejection this deep awareness of maybe I, maybe I do do bad things. Maybe I have done bad things in my life, but I'm just trying to get around it in a way. And instead Jesus, I mean, he just not only invites her to living water, but then in his response, he kind of confronts the very issue that is her shame. Mm. So I think for, for us in the therapeutic work, in our own spiritual and emotional work, we do have to identify like, what is my shame? Yeah. Not just that I have it, but what in particular is this interpersonal dynamic? Shame is always interpersonal. We don't often feel shame so much on our own. It's why we can shut our door and even be engaged in addiction and feel okay in the moment. But shame is this like interpersonal feedback we get from others saying like, you are gross or you are bad. Like, I can't believe you do that or did that. And, and so in that regard, we want to be met at the core of our shame, which could be many, many different things for many people. Um, But that is a part of the healing work, I think, with addiction is discovering what is my, what is the particular shame that's driving me into this behavior? What is it that I feel right before I go to that addictive behavior? Lonely, rejected, unseen, unmet, Mm. traumatized. I mean, any number of of things can be a, a real key trigger to the shame, which then is looking for relief in some kind of maybe addictive behavior. Wow. I mean, it's scary enough admitting that, that someone, you know, that, that I need help. Yeah. But then but I need help with this thing that is so like, right. So shameful. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when, when our clients come in to see us, right. There's, they're already like, I'm like, I'm, I'm here because I have like, because I do all these quote, you know, bad things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the course of treatment, you know, I will ask, like, what are you viewing? Hmm. I was like, ah, um, I don't know if I really want to tell you that. I mean, that's like, that's, that's too much. But, but once they, once they answer that question, that, that reveals, you know, to a deeper level where they have been hurt. Hmm. And typically the, the way they've been hurt will, will kind of manifest in either the behaviors uh, or, or what they're viewing. Mm-hmm. And once they can name that, it starts like dismantling, not just the sh- their shame, but starts, um, uh, 
it takes the authority and power away from also from their behavior. Yeah. So it's bringing it to light. Mm-hmm. And shame does cannot operate in, in, the, in the light. Wow. Oh, wow. That was beautiful. Um, Abby, I really appreciated that bringing in the, you know, the story of the Samaritan woman. I love that perspective that she's actually going for the quick fix, but Jesus is inviting her to a deeper place of vulnerability and that he kind of works to get to the root and, and give himself in that. So I'm kind of wondering with this, because I think that, you know, in the church, we can be just a little close-minded, not, not close-minded, but a little narrowly focused on the actions themselves. And I think the heart for a lot of people is wanting to see someone get out of sin. And so, you know, the hope is, well, let, let's get them out of this action right away. And so it's really very holistic and, and beautiful to hear you guys talking about really seeing the person and getting to that root point of pain and of shame. So I'm curious, what kind of advice could you give us in the sense of how do we respond initially? You know, for those of us who aren't therapists and we have a friend or someone we're ministering to and it comes up that there's some level of addiction, what can and should we say? Um, Because... I've known just so many people where the response or the way that we're kind of programmed to respond is just go to confession. And there's, of course, the supernatural graces and Jesus pours that out, but, you know, he's a holistic God. So what can we say? What can we do? What's helpful advice? What's not helpful advice for us to give? Hmm. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, ask any friend who's been addicted and say, what, what did someone say to you that would be helpful? That would be a great thing. Because um, I'm sure there's a, a plethora of, of feedback. But I do think any, any idea of just like, okay, a, kind of a one-time do this and then you're going to be fixed forever. Mm. Because these are such deeply rooted, oftentimes, behavior patterns, thought patterns. I mean, addiction, as Chris and I can attest, it can be incredibly complex, the addictive cycles that people find themselves in. It's not just like, oh, when I acted out and looked at porn and masturbated, there's a whole backstory to, to having one moment of acting out. And so in that regard, yes, confession, sacramental confession, sharing with peers, it's so important. But if we if we stop there in a way we're cutting off like the top of a bud on a limb and that limb is still being so nourished. And so Mm. only say, well, cut off the bud, just confess that and be done with it. Yes. You're so right. There is a supernatural grace that God gives us through confession, even confessing the same thing. All right. Once a day for seven weeks. I mean, it's just like, okay, if I've got to do it, I'm going to do it. Like I will do it if I need to. But I think what I would say for someone who who's disclosing this, maybe for the first time to a friend or a peer, I think honestly, giving a non-shaming response, which is mm. contact, which is compassionate hearing, like, I'm so sorry. I, I know a lot of parents with kids and Chris, you've, I've heard Chris talk about how he's done this with his own kids. It's amazing. But this sense of like a parent to a child, I am so sorry that you've been violated yeah. by this world of sexual stimuli, like a real compassion on people like, okay, yeah, you've participated, but you've also been, you've been preyed upon yeah. in this way. And so I think when we approach people with that compassion, 
and we begin to walk with them as like walking partners. Hey, can I help you in this? Can I be an accountability partner? Do you want to check in with me daily? Mm. I'll, I'll receive a text in the morning. Yes or no. Did I, was I okay yesterday? You know, yeah. all these things become a human response. And I think anyone maybe who is stuck in a little bit of that, like, well, just go to confession or just fix it, just be done with it. Or, or is like recoiling because of disgust. I would say, you know, consider where you've had to come to Jesus in your own life. Like maybe it's not addiction, but can you see where your sin is equal before the cross as mm. these other sins? And to me, that's just, it's a human graciousness. And I do think we need to stop living in fear of addiction. We have to, we have to battle it. And that's, that's what we need to do in this day. Like we got to battle this because it's entrenched in our Christian culture, let alone Mm. the world, but we don't start battling it by just beating it. We start battling it by, yeah getting to the root of it and saying, Jesus, mercy, mercy deep within me. And we need priests as well as the body to offer that, to show that to us. I don't know what else I can add to that. (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, you know, I may give, uh, if I can, some language uh, to to, uh, to what you were uh, describing, Abby, uh, that, well, Oh, just you know, just go to confession. Uh, uh, say more rosaries, and 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 I'm not saying don't do those things. Yeah. Uh, but that that's a defense mechanism. It's called spiritual bypass, mm. right? When we don't, if so, if someone shares something with us that maybe hits at maybe part of our own story that we don't want to acknowledge, mm-hmm. right? Then we we want to quickly shut that down because it's it might stir some things that we thought, well, gosh, uh, I'm reminded of some things that I, I kind of wish I didn't remember, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that happens, right, we need to put that aside and just sit with that person, you know, and, and, and really thank them. Like, thank you for sharing that. Like, thank you for your courage and sharing this with me. Yeah. Right. Uh, I still love you. Like I'm, I'm still with you. Uh, you know, let, let, let's figure this out. Yeah, that's great. That's really, really helpful. Um, Abby, I really loved what you shared, especially about just how to respond with compassion, even just considering eye contact. Um, I think even also now having that language of spiritual bypassing is is very helpful. Um, but Abby, you started to talk a little bit about accountability. Um, could you guys speak a little more on that? What What is good accountability? What does that look like? And I guess kind of a question that goes along with accountability, and maybe this is a very separate question, but what are kind of fair expectations to have on somebody who is battling and overcoming addiction? I think there, there at least needs to be two key components to, to healthy accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being, it needs to be mutual hmm. and it has to be rooted in, uh, in compassion. Yeah. Right. It, it can't be this, this one way uh, relationship of, uh, of the person struggling coming to the accountability person and saying, well, today was a good day, but uh, maybe the next couple of days won't be a good day, but there's where there's no reciprocity. 
you know, when two or more people are holding each other accountable. Uh, and, and it can't be, you know, just on a, you know, on a particular behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Cause if, if that's our, like, if, if you know, if, if my measure of success is, well, I didn't act out today. Okay. Well, okay. We need to start somewhere, but after a while, instead of focusing on what we're not doing, what could I be doing instead? Yeah. Right. So I think a co- part of accountability needs to be, uh, you know, in, encouraging each other in our, in our walk with the Lord and our, in our walk with, with each other, not just, you know, checking in if, if we, uh, you know, acted out or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think your point is so important, Chris, that like, we can have objective accountability partners where it's like, okay, I'm just checking in. Did I, or didn't I? Yes or no. And and I think that that can be helpful, particularly in early phases of just like, okay, I know that I'm going to have to check in tomorrow. So that's a little motivating. (laughs) I don't, I don't want to be ashamed in front of these people I like, but I do think exactly what Chris is saying. Like we have to develop deeper walking partners Mm. who know us, who know our story, who know our vulnerabilities and who are doing more than just providing a, a screen to send a yes or a no to, but who are saying like, no, I'm calling you out. I see better in you. And I believe you're going to get there. And I want to know you in your process, not just, you know, how, you know, how much sobriety you have. Like, mm-hmm. I want to know how much sobriety you have, but I think I, Chris, you might speak to this for yourself, but I know with my clients and others, it's like, yes, yeah, sobriety date is important is a kind of a big part of a lot of 12 step approaches to addiction, substance abuse or others, but sobriety date in terms of just not acting out is not enough. I don't want someone just to be free from the behavior. I want them taking deep ground in the roots and kind of the unraveling of, okay, I used to get this desire met in this way, but now I'm getting this desire met with real people as a man who is addicted to pornography for 15 years, you have not learned how to have a real relationship with a real woman. You've had a relationship with pixels on a screen and it has not demanded anything of you or even given you the the beauty of real human relating. And so in accountability, we're beginning to say, okay, that is sobriety begins moving you in the direction of being able to engage with people. But now as an accountability community, as a good brotherhood or sisterhood, like I want you to get out there. I want you to take steps in relationship and tell me what's coming up. Like we want to know. So, so I do think like there are, there are many components to becoming freer from addiction and accountability is a huge one, but accountability as Chris and I are saying, much more than just, okay, it's the person that gets my covenant eyes report. Like they saw that I looked at porn once last week. It's like, well, great. But who are you enlisting to help you move forward in your healing and your story? It's important. It's very important. And there's a a wonderful quote that uh, it goes, uh, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Hmm. So yeah, like Abby was saying, if we're only focusing on extinguishing, you know, a particular behavior, but if we're not learning how to uh, relate well and relate in healthy ways with 
with others, um, you know, even if the even if the behavior has been long gone, uh, there's still something missing. Yeah, I really appreciate how. I, what I'm hearing is the approach you're taking to accountability has some similarities, even in the approach of understanding addiction that yes, there's these actions, but focus a little bit less on the actions into the deeper, the human, the, the holistic need. And yeah, hearing that is I think really powerful because it's um, much more holistic and going to be tailored to the individual person versus like a checklist. If here's how you get free or here's how you help someone else get free. And so I love that invitation into relationship um, and how that builds bridges and kind of destroys a sort of addicted versus non-addicted person, but just brings everyone into this place of, of healing and relating with one another. At least that's some of what I'm, what I'm hearing from this. Um, we just have a few more minutes. Um, and so I kind of have two questions. How do I want to weigh them? <laughs> um, I guess one question is what, what can we expect with the healing journey? You know, for those of us when we're overcoming addiction versus those of us when we're walking with someone with addiction, uh, what can we expect in that journey? Is it linear? Is it two steps forward, one step back? Um, what does it mean when someone up and stumbles again? Yeah, what can we expect? Sure. On the road. But over time, you know, when someone is really, you know, kind of quote, you know, working their program, mm -hmm. uh, they're going to see progress. They're, they're going to, um, and they will experience healing. Yeah. Uh, and if there's a, a slip or a relapse, uh, right, that's not to be looked at as evidence that, oh, this, this isn't working or I'm not trying hard enough. Uh, I'd say that's evidence that, that they're a human being. Mm -hmm. And we, right, we, we miss the mark sometimes. Yeah. And I think this, you know, it, it's such an important question. We could talk another hour on this, but this just with like relationships, people that yeah. are dating or entering into marriage or being married and addiction pops up and, and everything is kind of ransacked. I mean, everyone feels betrayed or feels wounded. And I think it is important to have a normal perspective that says, as Chris said, it's not linear. There are going to be, you know, a couple bumps here and there, but I do think kind of the most important thing or most important ingredient, I, I think in healing, even couples with addiction um, or a dating relationship, should this person be dating someone who's really struggling with addiction? I think transparency, honesty is a key ingredient, not being secret. Yeah. And for, for a couple that's dating and, a, a you know, this girl or guy here is, oh my gosh, my, my dating partner has deep history of addiction. I mean, I would say we should enter into healing seasons and that might be three months, that might be a year yeah. where we're really trying to take ground in that. But as we've said, relationships are a part of getting free from addiction. And so in that regard, we can't just say like, oh, once I'm free from addiction, then I'll have my relationships. Mm. Like, oh, no, I need to be growing, but maybe I do take a step back while I'm really intensively kind of working on figuring out where this shame root is. And maybe take a step back from a dating relationship or in a marriage, maybe my marriage, we're not taking a step back. We're not separating. We're not getting a divorce, but we are saying, wow, we've got to enter in 
to the pain of this and take a like pause. We got to give some attention to this in our life and relationship. And we're going to work on this. And that being, yeah, yeah, like an intentional decision for both parties and both parties getting the help that they need. Honestly, wives in, in this case, I mean, I'm not saying it's always this case, but wives of men with addiction have as much trauma as the addict himself. Mm-hmm. He is struggling. He's got a lot to work through, but she too has been assaulted by the presence of something that's a foreign object in their, their home or their lives or their bodies. And so, yeah, as therapists, we just see, we do see the whole picture and recognize this is a long process, but there are important ingredients to getting free. And one of those is being open, this accountability, but secrecy is one of the kind of biggest barriers to freedom from addiction when we keep things secret. So whether, whatever stage of relationship we're in and yeah, could say more, but I know we're out of time. Um, Yeah. Wow. That's, that sounds really fair. I love that you, um, first of all, took the approach of, yes, it's going to be messy. And I also really value the approach of needing relationships, but embracing seasons of healing. I think everything I'm hearing from you you today is um, just really seeing the human and whether you mean this to come across or not, I just feel such a love for for humanity kind of pouring out of of everything you two are sharing today of just look, seeing the, the addiction as a reflection of need and of pain. Um, and really that almost seems like the launching pad that invites everybody into a place of, of freedom and of seeking healing. Uh, so I know we have to wrap up, but I just wanted to give a space. Um, do you guys have any more kind of maybe a last word of hope um, in the midst of this that you could share today? I think, I mean, I might just kind of leave it with this thought, but C.S. Lewis says, you know, the best way to overcome false desires is to engender true ones. And I do think um, for all of us to just be able to say, like, I, I am really hungry for satisfaction, happiness, contentment, all the fruits of the spirit. I'm, I'm hungry for that. And cultivating that in, in every area of our life, really looking for that. And, you know, as Catholics, I assume many of your, most of your listeners are Catholic, maybe not all, but I do think the Eucharist, this real meal, we're, we're fed by a real meal, a real person. And when that's, of course, partaken of with the Lord, but then also with his members, the body, there's something that I think God has as a, a key for us in there that we need kind of this, uh, this deep satisfaction, this deep feeding. And I'm not saying we feel that every moment of our days, but I do think what we, when we realize what we have access to both in the Lord and his church, there is um, a gift for us there in overcoming all of our struggles and it's progressive. I don't think it happens overnight, but that's the journey of healing, sanctification, transformation, and I think keeping the hope for transformation, this addiction is not more powerful than God and his church. Like it's just not. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that, that he has paths to freedom and is, is not just as committed, but more committed to our freedom than even our, our good subtle desires are. He's more committed to us than that. Wow. And I would say too, uh, the parts of our, 
or the places in our hearts that, that we find, you know, the darkest, uh, the most shameful. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Jesus isn't afraid. Yeah. Right. In fact, I would say that those are the, the parts of us that, that he most, um, he most wants to, to visit mm-hmm. and to meet us, to meet us there. Um, Cause I think sometimes we think, gosh, like I can't let him in there. It's, it's, it's nasty in there. Uh, but I think that's where he wants to love us the most. Amen. Thank you so much for those words and inspiration of hope. Friend, as you're listening today, I hope and pray that you hear the hope of the Lord calling you onward into a place of healing. Uh, for those of us who are actively struggling with addiction, I hope you hear that the Lord is calling you from a place of shame into a place of healing. And friend, for those of us who are listening, who are journeying with somebody who's battling with addiction, I encourage you to take this to heart to engage into going into the depths of the healing need with someone else and to embrace the profound gift of our Eucharistic Lord and the way that He pours out His graces on us, as well as then to step into the gifts that He pours out through therapists like Abby and Chris. Abby and Chris, thank you so much for the gift of your time and of your great knowledge. Uh, Thank you for the work that you've done in the world and the sacrifices that you've made to come to a point of helping others find healing. You know, we pray that God just blesses you in abundance, um, not just today, but with all the work that you're doing. And friend, as you're listening, we hope you know that you're not alone, but the Lord is calling you into a place of wholeness with Him. So in all things, lean on the Lord and rely on the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.